This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security. Things are moving fast. Israel is heading for a judicial overhaul. We will talk in depth about what that means. Newly appointed Minister of National Security, Itamar Ben-Gvir, ascends to the Temple Mount. And that is not even all of the news coming out of the new Netanyahu government this week. It's Unholy. I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And Jonathan is our elected speaker. No six votes needed this week. <laughs> it's Unholy. Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts, our first of 2023, Yonit. How was the new year for you? <laughs> well, you know, um, nothing too interesting happening here. I mean, really, let's talk about your neck of the woods. I'm kidding, of course. Um, I can't avoid that quote by Lenin, right? There are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. So that is, to be quite honest, the feeling of... On this end of the conversation, right, that this has been a week where decades happen. Things have been happening here very, very fast. Uh, some people would actually feel that things are unraveling very fast. So I think that's the long answer to your question, how are things? <laughs> yeah, no, and we'll get into all of it in this episode. I was actually going to um, just mention as a little side note how I saw in the new year. Because a new tradition has evolved in the Friedland household for December 31st as it turns to January the 1st. And it's a tradition of which I know you will approve. Mm -hmm. Because last year, my wife and I stumbled across late at night, as in after midnight, uh, after all the champagne and everything else had happened, aired very late on TV, was the greatest rom-com ever made, as you know. But the argument that we often have is whether it is the most Jewish film ever made. And When Harry Met Sally is, of course, what I'm talking about. And it was on last year. And Sarah and I looked at each other and just thought, we've got to watch it again. I mean, it is just because there are not many films set on New Year's Eve, actually. There's, you know, many, many Christmas films, but really? films that, you know, culminate on New Year's Eve, you know, you'll have to, people can tell us, write in, go onto our Facebook page, Unholy Podcast or Instagram or whatever, tell us other films with a New Year's Eve setting. But anyway... The It gave me another chance for our perennial conversation of is When Harry Met Sally not only clearly the best rom-com ever made and best, perhaps best comedy ever made. I mean, candidate for one of the best films ever made. It is, it's perfection. So just I'm sensing you like it, time. right? I mean, it's really understated, each but you like the time, film. <laughs> each time. But the Jewishness of it is a discussion we aim to have one day, <laughs> you and I. It's one of our dreams to have one day, not just with you and me, but with one of the people involved. So, Billy Crystal, if you're listening, Rob Reiner, if you're listening. Or any of their friends, to find us. of any of their friends or associates. We would be happy because it is such a brilliant film. So that is how I saw in the new year after the chimes of Big Ben. And believe me, I think that's better than the option that might, for example, my, uh, the next generation have of, you know, roaming from one party to another late at night, cold London streets, etc. Don't worry, I've done that. But to quote Carrie Fisher in the movie, don't make me go out there again. <laughs> I don't want to have to do that again. And instead, it is with um, Harry, Sally, and can you name the two friends, by the way? Oh, I was going to say Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby. Obviously, um, but what are the characters' names? I can't. I'm not sure I've got them. Oh dear! Wow! I can't believe you're doing that. Isn't that to interesting? Me now. Are it's they been ever a named? Difficult week. Of course they do. Marie and Jess 
Are you kidding me, man? I've seen that movie like 300 times. I could oh, give you, you the whole it. thing. Oh, you found it. Okay. Yeah. Wouldn't have been able to tell you even though I, I saw it. I found it, it in my ago. brain. You, when you say you found it, you make no, it sound I know you like did. I went you, to you Google. You dredged that up. I did. That was impressive. Um, that was impressive. I have to say that I only saw it days ago. And as a sign of my galloping age, I can I do the whole thing. To, I can, instead of, a, of an unholy episode, I can give you the whole film, all of it. Mm-hmm. You could. The question is, would it be as funny? Um, <laughs> We can test that hypothesis. Anyway, that was the new year. Perhaps uh, perhaps it's the best moment of 2023 and it's going to go downhill from now. Because as you said before, the news out of Israel is disquieting would be uh, perhaps a word that, you know, even neutral observers could settle on. To me, it's wholly depressing what's happening. But, you know, why don't we just go through it? Because there is this package of legal reforms that have been announced. As you and I record, it's it's just sort of hours after they were announced. What's in them? Yes, judicial reform announced by uh, Minister Justice Minister Yariv Levine uh, just uh, yesterday. We're recording this on Thursday. He didn't use the word revolution, but many Israelis, even uh, who support this judicial overhaul, do. I'm going to go into what the plan is, but before I do, I'm just going to set the stage on timing for you, Jonathan. He spoke on the eve of uh, the, the hearing uh, on the in the High Court of Justice on the dairy law. So just to remind our listeners what we're talking about, the basic law of the government had to be changed to allow Arya Dairy to be appointed Minister of the Interior and Minister of Health after he, he was convicted of tax offenses. So the timing, right, rolling out this plan on the eve of the, the hearing is, as uh, Yeir Lapid, the head of opposition, said, this was like placing a loaded gun on the table uh, for the court. Now, let's talk about... Uh, but yeah. just on the dairy thing, mm-hmm. just so people are across that, because I, left to its own, other things being equal, somebody who had been convicted of tax evasion would not be able to serve mm-hmm. in the government at that level, interior minister and uh, health minister, and therefore there would need to be some change, yeah. hence the dairy law, a law that would allow a convict to serve in government at that level. Yes, that is that exactly is the discussion uh, in the Supreme Court today in the High Court of Justice. Eleven judges. The decision will not be made today, but obviously, if the government wants to appoint Darian already has appointed him, and the Supreme Court decides that he cannot be minister. That is where this all begins, right? This is going to be ground zero for the battle between the BB block and the anti-BB block on the issue of the judicial system in Israel. Now, what are the plans or what, as Yariv Levine stated, the first stage of his judicial overhaul. First of all, and we will go into this in a little bit more detail, an override clause, which means legislation that will permit the Knesset to override a Supreme Court decision by a very slim majority of 61. The Knesset has 120 seats in total. The second point is tipping the balance in the Judicial Appointees Committee in favor of politicians. Today, it is politicians, lawyers, and judges. Take out the lawyers. Have the politicians, have the majority, means politicians will basically be the ones appointing judges in Israel and, very importantly, allow ministers to appoint their legal advisors uh, who would act on their behalf and not be uh, subordinate to the attorney general, meaning won't be able to act as gatekeepers, essentially. Now, let's go to the heart of the plan, which is the override clause, and to, the Supreme Court can change it. Can, you can override the Supreme Court decisions with a majority of 61. This is the heart of the disagreement. Because you do need to say that there is an ideological disagreement between the left and the right, as it is today in Israel, right? Because the right that uh, Menachem Begin led would not ever think of changing the independence of the judiciary. But this is what the, the right is saying, essentially. The right is saying this. 
who has the final say if a law is in disagreement between the judiciary and the legislative branch? What the right is saying is the legislative branch needs to have the final say. But, and this is important to say, and I know we're getting into the weeds of legal jargon here in Israel, but if the government has a majority anyway in the Knesset because it is a coalition government, then what you're actually saying is that the government needs to have power over all of this. This is sort of the heart of the issue. Yariv Levin is an ideologue, right? I mean, this is what he has believed for 30 years. Netanyahu has now been jumping on this cart, some would say, not coincidentally, he was against these reforms 10 years ago, but now he is uh, pro these reforms, and many would say his detractors would definitely say he's for these reforms because of his legal status. So, tons to react to in all of that and to talk through, but just go on picking up that very last point about his own legal predicament. So, he's on trial, Benjamin Netanyahu, for corruption charges. Mm -hmm. You went through all the different elements of this package which, if any of those, helps him out of his position? Because it's a court who will find him. It's not, as I understand, it's not the Supreme Court sitting there judging him on these corruption charges. So just, I get that he was in a fix. And partly why he chose these coalition partners rather than others was these coalition partners are willing to do what's needed to get him off that legal hook, mm -hmm. whereas other potential partners were not. But what is the mechanism in there that helps him directly get out of this legal hole he's in, personally. You know, you're a sharp uh, observer. Maybe you should become a top journalist one day. But of course, nothing in this specifically, and I, I, I stress this, first stage, right? That is what Yeriv Levin, nothing in this specifically seems to be connected to the Netanyahu case, because that is exactly what they are trying to say. We want this judicial reform. We have always wanted it. It has absolutely nothing to do with the Netanyahu trial. And and why are we, in case in point, what Yeriv Levin really wants, in addition to what he suggests, yesterday is to weaken the attorney general. He can't suggest that now because that looks so obviously the attorney general is the person who is responsible of, to, of indicting Netanyahu and the responsible for the cases. He can't seem like he's trying to weaken the attorney general while this whole thing is going on. But of course, if you zoom out from this whole plan and you realize that what the plan is essentially is to weaken the judicial system, again, both sides would agree on that wording because that they think that the judiciary is too powerful. If generally what you're doing is weakening the judiciary while the prime minister is on trial, then that begs a lot of questions. But you're right that in the specific plan presented yesterday, there's nothing that could seemingly attach Netanyahu to it or, the, or his trial. To no, it. that's really um, clarifying. And absolutely, if you want to weaken the judicial system, you start at the head in a way and you weaken the Supreme Court. And, and 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 interesting as well, this point about the Attorney General, because of course, the Attorney General is an odd sort of hybrid character in the Israeli system, as mm -hmm. I understand it, which is that yes, appointed by the government and, you know, picked from a list of candidates by the Justice Minister, a member of the government, but a sort of quasi-independent role in the sense they're appointed. They, they you know, a, a list of candidates appears from a committee, a public appoint, a public committee that makes the appointment. So, the, there is some independence there. And I mention that partly because in some countries there are attorneys general who are just cabinet ministers who could, could do the bidding of you know, the prime minister, but the Israel's attorney general is an office of some independence. Right. Um, no, uh, the thing I really, uh, there's so many things to pick up, but I did notice you mentioned Menachem Begin and, and Gidon Saar, um, who was once in the Likud and is now an opposition politician, also mentioned um, Menachem Begin saying that tradition is dead. 
I think there are people who didn't, who never sort of quite got that outside because they saw Menachem Begin as a right wing figure in the seventies and eighties and a figure of right wing nationalism, and yet would hear inside Israel people describing Begin and Beginism as a kind of liberalism of a very particular kind that really believed in institutions and centrality of rule of law. And that piece of kind of Herut Likud lineage mm -hmm. has steadily been squeezed out of public life. There were these last holdouts, Benny Begin, Menachem Begin's son, Reuven Rivlin, the former president, was somebody who embodied that a little bit. And the, the thing I'm tempted to ask is, is there anybody on the government benches in Camp Bibi, even on that Likud list, who still carries a little bit of a flag for that. And the reason I ask partly is I remember, you know, it's not that long ago, when the previous government was unravelling, our focus was on these one or two individuals mm -hmm. who, in the end, did break off the coalition and cross the floor, as it were. They changed sides, Idid Silman and the, a couple of other characters. And all eyes were on them because they wouldn't take it anymore. And I'm just wondering, is there anyone, I guess the answer to this is no, by the way, but is there anyone on the Likud side, on the right, who might find these judicial changes too much because they do erode what has been a crucial part of Israel's you know, image around the world? We are the only democracy in the Middle East, and look at our Supreme Court. That is not what you'd find in anywhere else in this neighborhood. It's a robust, independent court. Are there people in the BB slate of Likud Knesset members who might say, we can't be doing this? I think that's a salient question, and I don't really have the answer. But I, I will say this. What has happened to the Israeli political sphere uh, is this, really. You have a distinction between the Bibi bloc that thinks two things. One, the cases against Netanyahu are fabricated, and this leads to a conclusion that says we need to weaken the judiciary. I'm, I'm, I'm oversimplifying. The other side says the cases need to continue and the judicial system needs to stay as it is. Are there enough people who say what, by the way, Alan Dershowitz says out loud, right? He's a very staunch Netanyahu supporter. I know his name means a lot to a lot of people in different, uh, uh, completely different contexts. But he says this, he says, I think the case is an embarrassment. You should have been, and you should not have indicted Netanyahu on these cases. But he says, the judiciary in Israel is a jewel among judiciaries. Don't touch the, the legal system. Are there these kinds of people in the Likud, right? Who are fans of Netanyahu and everything, but break away on this issue. I haven't heard any MK saying that. And by the way, this plan wasn't kept clandestine, right? I mean, the whole thing was, no. was said before the elections. But are there people in the public who think differently? I mean, there's really something very interesting, Jonathan. Obviously, Netanyahu said this This plan was set out before the elections. He's, there were 64 mandates, right? He won 64 seats. But when you ask people, specifically in polls, are they for changing the law for dairy? Are they for the override clause? These things don't have a majority, the other way around. So where are those people who actually are against this but still support Netanyahu? I think they exist. The question is, you know, will they protest? Will they protest in the Knesset? Will they protest in the streets? I do not know the answer to that to that very good question. So then the question is about those, those people who are predictably and obviously against this. Mm -hmm. The liberals, you know, secular, you know, Western looking, as in they or they they look towards and see want Israel to be part of the West. Those Israelis 
what's what is the mood among those people when they look at this because this is the kind of move that you know we have would have talked about even on this podcast but people in our jobs have been reporting on out of Viktor Orban's Hungary or you know Poland or other places where the eroding of institutions is a big signature move of that particular kind of nationalist populist government and you know Israel's been under Netanyahu before obviously but it hasn't got to this particular pitch where there is an assault and a serious one on on the judiciary and on that kind of you know democratic norm um and i'm just wondering you know how are people in that bit of israel reacting to this is this you know one of those moments where people think i've taken a lot but this is a line that is should never be crossed it can't be crossed and people being just think i'm not sure how i feel about my country anymore if this is how it's been governed i you know what's the mood like among that on the on the secular israeli or liberal enlightened israeli street i think among those you know that line from that mika song say goodbye to the world you thought you lived in i think that would probably sum up the feeling look Yariv levine is planning to do this in a mere couple of weeks okay very very quickly even if you are a staunch supporter of this plan because you you think there should be a judicial overhaul you need to ask yourself i think how can you do this in a couple of weeks? Like, what serious discussion can happen in weeks? And the answer is, of course, political and not any other answer. The, they wanted to do this as a shock and awe kind of thing, right? To borrow a, an Iraqi war, a term. So the other side is very fractured. Uh, the head of the opposition, as we speak now, is in a vacation in France, Yair Lapid. By the way, I have not heard the president of Israel say anything, Yitzhak Bougie Herzog, on this matter. The Israeli public, what is their reaction going to be? Again, I, I'm sorry I have more questions than answers, but I think that is going to be crucial to understand where all this is going in the coming weeks. Interesting you mentioned the president. I mean, presidents are meant to stay out of politics. Could Would that be within the sort of remit of a president to say, uh-uh, this is not on? Because... What how, what would he what would be his base there to basis to say that would it be that his job is to defend the constitution the institutions? If he if this is an if if he is concerned that the courts in this country will no longer be able to protect civil rights and liberties, I think that I would say something. Maybe he isn't concerned. That could be an option. But if there is a point in which you feel that there is a you know sort of this tipping point in which something can change fundamentally. And this is a discussion about fundamentally changing the system. Maybe you should say something. Maybe he's not concerned. I I, I don't have an answer to that question. Well, if you're listening, President Herzog, <laughs> the, the question has been put on the table. Um, bottom line, from putting together the two things you've just said there, this is going to happen, right? It's not as if there's some you know scenario where Apart from, I suppose, if Netanyahu softens this because he sees international reaction, he sees Israel's defenders. I mean, that Dershowitz point you made before is really telling because he's somebody who's prepared to stomach a lot. I mean, he's a Trump supporter. He's not some, you know, liberal New York Times op-ed page complainer who could easily be dismissed. Um Maybe that's the thing that happens is Netanyahu himself pulls back because he sees that this as we've been saying in recent weeks, he is alive to the perception of Israel around the world. And if it is perceived as an Orbanist outpost, 
he will know that is not great for him, I think. You know, uh, Amir Fuchs, who's uh, of the Israeli Democratic Democracy Institute, wrote, and I think summed it up very nicely on Facebook, he said, the Supreme Court spent decades defending civil rights, now it's time for the civilians to defend the Supreme Court. And I think that that the reaction, again, of the Israeli population will be uh, very interesting to see. That can sway Netanyahu, I believe, and as you say, international reaction can change the picture. But at the end of the day, there is a very uh, organized plan. It has been set in motion. There is enough of a coalition-based support for it from religious Zionism, from the ultra-Orthodox, from uh, Jewish power, from the Likud, right? And it's amazing because some of these groups represent, for example, Orthodox Jews. They represent groups that the Supreme Court in different decisions you know, tried to protect in protecting minorities. That doesn't really matter. All of these think that the Supreme Court needs to be uh, less powerful than it is. You have a prime minister who is very much a supporter of this now. So I'm, I'm not sure there is a lot that can change this trajectory. And if judges, former chief justices, you know, those people, big figures in the, in the legal community speak out as they have been, mm-hmm. that doesn't move the needle. It feels like it's preaching to the choir. I don't think it's it's convincing the people on the other side who thinks this yeah. this reform is needed. And by the way, it's okay to have a discussion about the checks and balances. It's healthy for a democracy. And what what restrains the majority, what gives power to the minority, all of these are, are fine discussions to have. But the question is, can you have them in, in several weeks? And the question is, again, if a prime minister himself is at the mercy of the courts, is it the right time to have this discussion? So you said at the start, channeling Lenin, that um, you know there are weeks where decades happen. So this, the funny thing is, when this week be- began, it seemed like the big story. And actually, the story that did make more news internationally was Itamar Ben Gvir's walk to Temple Mount slash Haram el Sharif, the you know key epicenter of the religious significance of of Jerusalem. People talk about Jerusalem as this capital of three great religions, etc. But the absolute sort of centre of the centre is that patch of land. And the previous convention is that Jews do not really go up there to pray um, because, well, there's a religious reason not uh, to not do it in Judaism terms, because that is the Holy of Holies. And therefore, in the period of the temple, when the temple stood, only the high priest would enter that innermost sanctum. And therefore, you know, Jews, Orthodox Jews should fear to tread on that sacred soil. And there was that reason for staying away. It was always quite convenient that there was that religious argument, because there's also a massive political argument, which is it is so sensitive as the location also of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, etc. And the place that, you know, Islam teaches where Muhammad ascended. So, just nuclear in its significance. And it's always been this thing that right-wing politicians, we remember Ariel Sharon did it in 2001. They make this point of flexing muscle and showing sovereignty, you know, declaring Israeli sovereignty or, or manifesting Israeli sovereignty by going. And so what happened with Itamar Ben-Gvir? Because like I say, that is actually of the week. That's the story that made news certainly here and internationally. Yeah, that, two days ago, that's what we thought we'd be focusing on in this, right. in this episode. Um, as you said, yes, the Temple Mount, obviously frequent flashpoint for friction. Muslims believe it's where Muhammad the prophet ascended to heaven. And Jews, of course, uh, uh, think that this is the site of both biblical temples. And of course, uh, again, we should say the status quo is this. Jews can visit, but they cannot 
prey. And of course, when a right-wing minister like Itamar Ben-Gvir decides to go there and fulfill, thus fulfill his election promise, that is, you know, that has a vol- volatile uh, uh, possibility. So he did indeed uh, go there on uh, very early on a Tuesday. Um, I know that your head will spin if I try to weld the words Ben-Gvir and responsibility in the same sentence. But from his point of view, I know I see the smoke coming out of your ears. From his point of view, look, usually this was a man who, when he did, did this, and by the way, under the Bennett-Lapid government, he went there at least six times. It was always with telling the media he's going. You know, this is a man who doesn't sees a camera, he poses for it, right? He He really loves the cameras. This time he did it no cameras, walked up at a very early hour. The place was pretty much deserted and he did it from a sort of side entrance. So he did it as low profile as he can do it, right, from his point of view. This whole thing is 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 twofold in his perspective. One is to show how, to try and see how far he can go with Netanyahu on one end and then the other, you know, showing his supporters he's still the lovable provocateur that he always was, right? So that is what he got from this. We should say the reaction, like everyone, all of the other players in the game reacted in character, right? I mean, there's there's condemnation, but there wasn't a dramatic response from Hamas. Hamas will respond whenever they want to. And I think they as well are trying to wait and see where this, how far he can go. And all the other players, and essentially, of course, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, all of these are, they have their condemnations, but none of them did something too dramatic in response to this um, uh, walking up the Temple Mount. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't think you did see smoke coming out of my ears because I think in a way, look, you know, the bar is lower, but it's true what you say that this there are there are ways to do this and there are uh, there are other ways to do it and on that scale this was the the less provocative and I and I I, I take your point about this was he by then he was locked into it he had to do it etc. And so it didn't have the huge sort of flashpoint reactions that it could have done so far, right? We haven't, you know, it maybe hasn't fully played out. But as mm-hmm. we speak, it hasn't had the um, that sort of lighting of the blue touch paper effect. In terms of the Gulf states, this is something we've clocked on this podcast a bit. We talked here about how the fact that the uh, UAE, United Arab Emirates Embassy in Tel Aviv, had their national day and invited Itamar Ben-Gvir to attend. He was there which I took as being a sign that, wow, these people, these Gulf states really have no red lines at all. I mean, if they find this guy acceptable and palatable, wow, that that's now in play a bit because maybe they, there is a limit and maybe that is why he did restrain himself relatively mm-hmm. in the ways you've described because they did say, you know, they did issue statements, etc. They didn't just pretend it hadn't happened. And it's had an impact on this upcoming visit of Netanyahu's, you know, yes. which... Well, I mean, you tell me. Yeah, I mean, I mean it they, they denied now? it and they said that it wasn't because of it. But obviously, I mean, there, there was a, a not an official announcement. It was pretty clear that he's going next week. And then the UAE said, yeah, we're going to have to postpone it because of technical difficulties. It may be a little bit of a shift, but he's going to go there, right? And the uh, Biden administration is going to send representatives here in a very short period of time. So it's not that diplomatic ties with the state of Israel have been, you know, uh, severed. But again, every, I think that the, the key is that everyone is sort of on pins and needles waiting to see what this government is you know, going to do what Benville is going to do, what Smotrich is going to do. I'll just remind you, these people, there's no love lost between those two, right? I mean, remember, they, they're back into being in two parties after the elections. They ran together. They broke apart after the elections. You might see a little bit of an arms race there going on, like who's going to be the real right wing, far right leader. So that is something interesting to watch. But again, everyone is sort of sitting and waiting 
to see where all this is is uh, unfolding. I, I do feel like I need to say something more, Jonathan, about the kind of mood of of the country, because what we have been seeing, I mean, it's just a week since we talked about the uh, swearing-in ceremony of the government. And I, I want to quote to you um, the coalition whip, uh, Ophir Katz, who tweeted this line. He said, it's time for the left to get used to the new reality. We don't care what you think anymore. And this seems like the motto for this uh, government in a lot of what it is doing, right? I mean, we talked about the amendment to the discrimination uh, law that is basically that will allow businesses and doctors to refuse to service people if it uh, violates their religious beliefs. I don't think it will become a law, but it is in the coalition agreement. So that is a statement. The fact that the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, want a law to uh, exempt them officially from military service, that is a statement. Whatever Ben Gvir is doing and whatever the effect of it is, is a statement. And of course, changing the judicial system in this country is a statement. And and the fact that this whole country is built on the idea of solidarity. And if you go to a hospital, you will see that beauty of a, of a medical staff working together, Arabs and Jews and women and men and secular and religious. And the fact that that might be frayed because of this you know, we don't care about you kind of attitude. I think that is something that is very, very worrying. And when you add to that the fact that we actually can't afford this because there are many external enemies as well, I think this is a sort of period of of a lot of, I don't know, I sound like I'm in a little of a contemplative mood, but I mean, it's a, it's, it's a very sort of uh, intense kind of, kind of period here. Yeah. No, I, I'm only guessing here, but I, I feel myself that I've, been in that place um, in recent years. I mean, for a particular kind of Brit after the Brexit vote in June 2016, a whole lot of realisation of things that people felt mattered to them very deeply about how they identified with their country were taken away. I think, you know, Democrats felt it in 2016, the same year, November, when Donald Trump was suddenly president. We're only talking in both cases about half the country, Mm -hmm. um, actually more than half in the Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton case, because she got more votes than he did. But in Britain, it was 48% of the country voted to remain in the EU. In in America, it was more just slightly more than 50% had voted against Donald Trump. And suddenly, you, you know, something you thought you knew about your country or that you valued or was precious to you about your country is taken away. I suspect that, you know, those Israelis, again, actually, it's like analogous to America, in 2016, Amen. Well, it wasn't a slightly higher number, was it? But it was a very, very close number voted against this government, um, and because of the electoral system, they lost more heavily than those numbers would suggest. But that feeling of being out of step with the direction your country is taking is—it isn't just political. It isn't just watching the news. It is something that goes into you, and it is sort of in—you feel it on the inside, and. A good friend of mine talks about that feeling of sort of inner exile. Not a good feeling. And I think um, my guess is there are a number of, and that's partly why I was asking you, you know, what the extent of it is, but there will be a substantial number of Israelis who are feeling that. And, um, you know, I get it. I mean, the the thing we went through here, you know, when I say we, I mean sort of Remainer types, was a kind of first stage was denial. And if I'm honest about it, it lasted a couple of years where you were looking for ways in which this might not happen. And so in Britain, it was all about, you know, Theresa May didn't have the votes and maybe there was going to be some procedural parliamentary game 
that would thwart Brexit and there would be a second referendum and people would come to their senses and vote to stay in the European Union. And it didn't work out like that. But for at least a good two years, I would say that was the hope. And in a way, I was doing a bit of that when I was saying, look, is there somebody who might break away from BB's party at the last minute and suddenly it's 59 votes or whatever? And I just found myself doing the same when you mentioned Ben Gvir and Smotrich's mutual antagonism, because I suddenly thought, what if one of those two break away? Because they aren't, you know, people, parties of the right can do these kind of crazy things and break out of the coalition and go into opposition. These are, you know, strategies, these are coping mechanisms. I'm aware of that. But I'm, you know, my guess is I'm not the only one doing them, I think, or resorting to them. I think there will be people who similarly are thinking, is there a way out of what is looking like there's no way out? You know, I I think that we should point out that, and even to the people who are feeling quite uh, dispirited (laughs) these days in Israel, one amazing fact that in a year and a half, Israel had four different prime ministers. And there was a complete peaceful transition of power between Netanyahu to his rivals, arch-rival Bennett, to Lapid, and back to Netanyahu. I mean, we're looking at, if we look at the United States and what happened January 6th, if we're looking even at Brazil, (laughs) I mean, there are countries who don't know how to do that or didn't know in recent elections. So I think that's something to to maybe hold on to and to point to. Or just, you know, I've had this um, AI obsession, so maybe robots are going to take over the, the whole place and run it better. I don't know. But I do think that at the end of the day, Israeli democracy is very strong. I don't know exactly where all this is heading. I I told you this right after the elections. I said, uh, I I think I remember, I'm quoting me, so that means very strange. But um, I said to you, like, this battle over the soul of the country didn't end, it just begun. So I don't know where this is heading. I can definitely tell you it's not going to be boring. No, it won't. I think it might be tough. Look, some of our listeners will be cock-a-hoop and delighted all this is happening. And so, you know, there's, I and will be affronted that I'm adopting the voice of sackcloth, ashes and mourning, because they'll be thinking this is all great. This is exactly what people vote for and, and bring it on. But um, at least a portion of our listeners will be feeling, I think, the way I am and some of those Israelis you've been describing are feeling. The bit, by the way, of thinking, well, at least it was peaceful. I did that one too. <laughs> oh, you didn't the buy peaceful. the AI robots thing? I thought the robots thing would would cheer you up. The, the machine learning is gaining <laughs> ground. Um, I definitely that was one of our, my favorite coping mechanisms. Look, you know, give thanks for this. Um, all right, uh, we should do some awards, we should. We don't should. you think? My guess is no shortage of chutzpah. Can we reveal that the committee did search high and low for a mensch for this week? We have got one, but why don't you kick off? Tougher week for menches this week. Um, Okay, we didn't talk enough about the Israeli government. I want to give the chutzpah award this week to the uh, newly minted uh, Minister of Transportation, uh, returning to the role, we should say, uh, Miri Regev, who said, uh, talking about public uh, transportation, she will re-examine intercity public transportation lanes, saying it's not okay that private cars are getting stuck in traffic while the public transportation lanes were empty. I think it was one of her assistants who actually added, Israelis just don't like public transportation. They prefer to take their own car. Uh, Which sort of, um, I don't know, runs against the idea of public transportation. If something's broke, just fix it. I mean, don't break it even more. Uh, But I thought that she deserves the chutzpah word for this. No, I, I think that's deserving because it is sort of missing the whole point <laughs> in such an egregious way. You would hope the transport minister did understand that the whole point of those sort of bus lanes or, you know, mass transit lanes is that they are 
quicker. And so the peer person sitting in the private car looking at those lanes thinks, maybe I won't take the car. Better thing for the environment, better for um, the common good in general. So that's a, um, a worthy winner for uh, chutzpah. With Mensch, we found a winner, so I'll mention that in a minute. But I just thought we would at least talk about somebody who sometimes we might have, in, in other times we might have made a Mensch, because we're often a bit sentimental, you and I. And often no. when there is a big, a little bit, um, <laughs> when there is a big public death, we often say, well, look, that person lived a notable life and they should be the Mensch. And so the passing of the former Pope Benedict, previously Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, would be, you would think, would be a potential candidate. And, you know, certainly that act of giving up the papacy and retiring and so on endeared him to quite a few people. But there's been some important commentary about his record. And because we're this this show, Unholy, we can talk about the unholy aspects of the Holy Father's or ex-Holy Father's record. And that is in when it comes to, you know, Jews and very particularly the wartime period. I mean, he was one of the last people, I always said the Queen was the last person who was in public life and who had had a role in the Second World War. And that there are very were very few in the world. He was one of that dwindling number, but not in a good way, because he had, of course, famously joined the Hitler Youth organization when he was 14, some argument among historians about whether he was forced to do that or whether he had any choice in the matter. But he was also, you know, he fought uh, in the Nazi, you know, German military in the Hitler period. But it's not that because obviously, you know, there's this argument that he was a young man and how much could he do. But, you know, in later opportunities to sort of make amends, 2009, he was visiting Israel, he went to Yad Vashem, uh, but he, when he spoke, his comments struck a lot of commentators as really quite general, sort of cursory. He didn't talk about any, he didn't sort of own his own history or involvement. He didn't talk about the church's role. Huge debates about Pope Pius Twelfth and what he did, and more importantly, perhaps did not do during the Holocaust. You and I have talked about that a bit in context of the book I wrote. He moved straight ahead, uh, Benedict, with moves to canonize, to make Pope Pius a saint, even though there are these big arguments. He was full on about that. So I think he has a sort of problematic history. And, uh, you know, I don't think we can say, oh, you know, out of sentiment uh, that he was just straightforwardly a, a winner of our mensch category. I think in some ways, perhaps the opposite. I mean, and that is even before you get to his record elsewhere as a real hardliner within the church and his record on failure on child abuse in the church i think it's a really from from where we you and i sit and we you know we don't expect catholics to defer to two jews when it comes to rating popes but i would hesitate to um award our little honor to um to the late Pope. So basically, you're initiating the not a mensch award. We're having the chutzpah award, the mensch award, and the not a mensch award. Okay, that's fine. Mm. <laughs> but would well, you want to give you the and I have talked about, we've always had a sort of mention, haven't we? Yes. But mention has always often been a sort of honorable mention where right. somebody is, you know, they deserve it. Yeah, you're right. I've just created the unmentioned. What could be more Jewish than that? Okay, do we have a mensch though, or we're, we're going we to do. remain mensch? We do, we do, we do, we do. Okay. Let's move to more positive <laughs> news in the form of Congressman elect Robert Garcia, Democrat of California, 
who and you know if we talk we have barely touched on the um, amazing scenes out of washington where there this failure to elect a speaker i have to say almost israeli slash british it really does it really does feel that way it really does i mean parliamentary chaos i mean britain has done pretty well in that department for the last two or three years but there but anyway the the, the swearing in of these congressmen because at the moment they're not really congressmen until there's a speaker they can't do anything but a newly elected congressman robert garcia has said that when finally he is able to have the ceremonial swearing in because these ceremonies have all been delayed he will do so not just swearing on a copy of the Constitution, but three items that mean a lot to me personally. A photo of his parents, who he lost to COVID. His citizenship certificate. He was born himself in Peru, immigrated as a child. But also an original copy of the very first edition of the Superman comic. Borrowed, checked out from the Library of Congress, an original and, you know, why does he want a comic book there? And he has explained that it was comic books that partly helped him learn English. And that is, uh, you know, a story that many immigrants will relate to. Superman itself often read, two Jewish creators famously often read as a story about immigrants because it was the outsider from the planet Krypton who, you know, felt himself alien from the people around him and yet obviously harbored huge talents and potential. Um, so yeah, good for Robert Garcia for that variation on the swearing in ceremony, albeit delayed. And I was waiting for you to mention those two Jews who created Superman, which I think is incredibly important and definitely for our podcast is something to underscore. Yeah. Um, so, yes, agreed. Probably going to be a lot more drama when next we meet. I don't know. But, I mean, that's the rhythm of things here now. So <laughs> For that, we Buckle should do our second, <laughs> our second Aaron Sorkin, you think, um, of the show. Yeah, I bet there will be. I look forward to talking with you about all of that uh, next week. If you've enjoyed it, you know what to do. Review, rate, um, messages on our Facebook page, which I mentioned before. Also, Instagram, Unholy Podcast. Uh, generally, spread the word. And please look up our bonus episode in which I do the whole Harry Met Sally with no Google transcript at all. Jess and Marie, how did I let that go? I just wasn't there, and it was days ago. I am worried about that. But yes, but I, but I would have said Carrie and Bruno. I would have got that. Um, we will say thank you to Gaia Glazer, Omer Prima, Rom Atik, and Yair Bashan. Jonathan does remember your names. Don't worry about that. We shall meet next week. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.